transition from gravel to precious stones. <clears throat> you must lift, you must carry. I can only I can only leave all things behind. Take me, lead me, be close to me, show me what you may next do. I'm not sure if that last word was intend or do, but <laughs> you get the idea. <laughs> um, but um, so thank you. You could get up and read it in Swedish. Sure, come read it in Swedish. I only got the last half of it on the recording. So come read it in Swedish, yeah. So That'll just really, you know, anybody that listens to the tape will really be impressed by that. Okay. What? Um, yeah. So I um, need my readers. Hold on. Uh-oh, show off your language. Uh, <laughs> Did you grow up speaking Swedish, or have you learned it as an adult? Okay. Uh, my grandparents um, came over from Sweden. Uh, like in 1890s, so. Yes. Yes. I'm gonna try. All right. We will not Okay. Yes, I will. I will. Thank you. Often <laughs> bon. Um, it's very. It sounds very poetic in Swedish, actually. So it's nice. Ingen stund are so sumdina. Quelvins. Sorry. Sorry, I can't. Um, I can't read my. Sista tista tima inya sorjer längre brana inya stammer mera stima. Tana nu i dina hander, dina dagen sam for flute. Vastia vit i got i vander, vadia halt eller brut. Untia tanker, untia hander, men du lacker al ogrener, mina dagger av for vlander, so afran go till sida shan stener. Du far tifta, du far bara. Ya kan bara altning lamna. Ta me le, le me var, me <coughs> munara ska me ve dusin mo amna. Yeah. <laughs> I will not be doing... Would not have that ability, so. Are you all hearing me? Is it okay? Okay. I feel like there's something goofy about this today. I don't know. I wonder if it's... It's just not weird. Well, part of it's I've got a sweater on, but... Instead of a, anyway. I know, I know. So, all right. I'll be fine. So, so today is... Uh, we're going to almost do just a... Not a verse by verse, but almost a verse by verse from from the second half of the book of Corinthians, at least through chapter 15. And uh, I told you all last week that I did my uh, doctoral ministry thesis on 1 Corinthians. The chapters I focused on were idle meat, 8, 9, and 10. My favorite chapters of the New Testament. You all probably thought you were back in Old Testament reading Leviticus with this. So, 
Uh, but it does, it, it's fun, and, and to, in order to make it fun, you've got to translate, uh, you know, prohibitions against eating meat offered to idols. To those of you who grew up in pietistic or strict conditions, strict religions, in which there were prohibitions, you know, whether it was dancing or drinking or, you know, no, I mean, any, anything like that is one way to get into this because I'll dare say I don't this may not this may be true of a couple of people of of the Jewish members of our class but I doubt that any of you have ever lost sleep about eating meat offered to idols is that a fair statement yeah, yeah. okay okay so um but it does give a window into what it really gives a window into is the way Paul is trying to meld a community together and hold a community together. And the, and the biggest issue is, um, which he will say is, um, you know, I, Paul, or you, Corinthians, may have certain individual rights as a believer, as a Christian, as a human being. But whether or not you exercise those rights, if your exercising of those rights um, is a significant barrier to somebody else's faith is the issue. Because he is so intent on building up the community. He is often, I mean, he is essentially asking people to consider not exercising their rights for the sake of the larger community. That's essentially what's going on here. The presenting issue is idol meat. So we're going to look at we're going to look at that, and then we're going to go to uh, chapter 11, which is women covering their heads, which is always a favorite in New Testament classes. And then we're going to go to 12, which is speaking in tongues, which is very connected to 13, which is the hymn to love. Uh, 13 and 14, he kind of returns to speaking in tongues, and then we're going to end with the resurrection. And I hope we can get all that done by the appointed hour. So we may have a little bit less discussion than normal, but I want to want to get you through this. So chapter 8, starting at verse 1, he begins by saying, Now concerning food offered to idols. Whenever he says now concerning something, that means they have written him about this subject. He is now turning his attention to respond to one of their letters. And then he says, All of us possess knowledge. And if you'll remember earlier in the letter, his opponents are claiming a special knowledge that he does not have as a leader and that some of his followers don't have. The words gnosis, we get Gnosticism from it. But they're claiming a sort of higher spiritual knowledge. And Paul begins by saying, all of us possess knowledge. You who are critics, we who are being criticized. But then he says, knowledge puffs up while love builds up. So he is putting the you know the value of love over the value of higher spiritual knowledge. And again, notice his use of the image builds up. He uses I mean a lot of us as as young people and even in the in the popular church, you know, know of Paul's use of the building as an image of the church. Um, 
he is using that here and referring to it by talking about building up the body of Christ. Okay. Um, then down in the next paragraph, um, verse 4, hence as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know, again, that no idol in the world really exists and that there is no God but one. That knowledge would therefore lead us to say we can eat meat offered to idols because they don't really exist. Indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things exist, for whom we exist, one Lord Jesus Christ, to whom all things and through whom we exist. It is not everyone, however, who has this knowledge. Since some have become so accustomed to idols until now, they think of the food they eat as food offered to an idol. And then this becomes the point. Their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Now, the the example that, that I use, and I'm sort of embarrassed to use it, but I'm too old to get too embarrassed now. Um, you know, I grew up in a Presbyterian household that was... I, I never had a fundamentalist or... Uh, Strict religion to bear, bear against. It was a very, uh, it was a very healthy upbringing in the Presbyterian Church, which many of you all had. Although I was very aware, being a Presbyterian in the Deep South, that most everybody else was Southern Baptist and and did have things to wrestle with. You know, did have more restrictive religion. But I was very proud as a uh, high schooler and college student, even though I went to the University of Arkansas, that I didn't drink. I later corrected that <laughs> once I got to seminary. But, you know, after, at least as a freshman, I didn't drink. And I was active in this Presbyterian church and this very uh, gracious and hospitable family who lived in a wonderful house, had all of the college kids over, the new college kids that were active in the church, you know, to their home for a Sunday evening. And, of course... You know, I I didn't want to take a glass of wine. And the poor hostess, they lived up kind of up on a mountain in Fayetteville. Fayetteville's very rocky, kind of like Colorado. Uh, I said, I'll just take, you know, hot tea. She didn't have hot tea in the house. And, you know, she got in her car and drove down the mountain. And, you know, there's not a whole lot of places in 1973 in Fayetteville, Arkansas, that you can find decent tea. But she found it and brought it back. And it's sort of at that point that I realized that, you know, my uh, conscience was standing in the way of the community, okay? You see, I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of a shallow example of what Paul is talking about here. Um, so, but he is concerned. I mean, it's the opposite because what he would say is, look, you know that you have the freedom to eat whatever meat is, is placed in front of you. You have that freedom. You know that. But if you are in a community, a small community of a church that has Gentiles and Jews and God-fearers and everybody sort of new and, and trying to form a community, if people are, it's not so much offended, but offended to the point that it hurts their faith, that if they see you eating food offered to idols, then don't exercise that freedom for the sake of the community. 
That is basically the argument he makes going back and forth with, with all of the idle meat. Uh, and, and again, growing up in the South, you, you would do that once I became someone who drank alcohol. You would know that, you know, uh, visiting certain people or even in certain groups, you would refrain from doing, doing that because you didn't want to. It's not only socially offend them, but, but you didn't want to, um, to, to defile their conscience or make them have a problem with conscience. Now, what he will also do is talk in this letter about the weak and the strong. And he is basically saying, those of you who have knowledge and know that it's okay to eat idle meat, have a strong faith. But, and those, those of, those who feel like they can't have a weak faith. He doesn't quite come out and say that, but it's clear that's what he's thinking. I mean, it's clear that that's what he believes. And so what he is asking is those who are strong of faith, to refrain from exercising their freedom on behalf of those who are weak in faith, those who are still growing. So, so let's you know look at that here and starting at, at seven. Uh, it is not everyone, however, who has this knowledge, since some have become so so accustomed to idols until now. They still think of the food they eat as food offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat, and we're no better off if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And stumbling block is just a really good phrase to describe um, describe what it becomes. For if others see you who possess knowledge eating in the temple of an idol... Might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food offered to idols? So by your knowledge, those weak believers for whom Christ died are destroyed. But when you thus sin against members of your family and wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause of their falling, I will never eat meat so that I may not cause one of them to fall. That's the essential argument he makes. And again, you can see the language of members of the family. Uh, I mean, he is really, he is much more concerned about building up the community of faith and bringing everybody along than he is the particular legalism, what he would say is legalism of, of not eating uh, food offered to idols. Yes.
therefore it's not permitted similar to what he's saying like if if you are going to cause someone to think that you know to pull someone away from God you shouldn't do it even though you can do it even though yes yes that's a good way of saying it if you think you're going to do something that will pull someone away from God, you shouldn't do it. That's essentially what he's saying. Now, what becomes, uh, and and just, I mean, let's let's sort of keep going with this, but look down at on chapter nine, verse three or verse four. Do you not have the do we not have the right to eat our food and drink? The answer is yes. Do we not have the right to be accompanied by a believing wife? This is another thing. It doesn't, it's not a, a Jewish thing. It's just uh, as do other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. It's only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain. Is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who at any time pays the expenses for doing military service? Who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat any of its fruit or tends a flock and doesn't eat any of the milk? Uh, do I say this on human authority? He's he's now being accused of you know making this up. Does not the law also say say the same thing? For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while you're treading out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? The answer is no. Or does God not speak entirely for our sake? It is indeed written for our sake. For whoever plows should plow in hope, and whoever threshes should thresh in hope of a share in the crop. All of these are addressing different laws or traditions that he is saying they're free from. Uh, but then if you'll look at verse 32, it's, it's more back as, as a statement of principle. Um, if others, well, we have not made use of this right that we have or these rights that we have. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And down at 15. But I have made no use of any of these rights, you know, to work, to be paid for, for his labor, to have a wife. I mean, he's got all of these rights that he's saying, but he is refraining from exercising them for the sake of the community. Um, then down at verse 19, I think it, it's sort of the same thing. I am free with, well, now let's come, let's come to that in a minute. So I just want to make sure that that's, you understand that that's what he's doing. And then we have to ask ourselves, you know, I, I think the second half of the ethical question is, how long do you let a community be held up by deferring to its weaker members, okay? Are um, are the members that that you know that Paul would say is is weaker, and and the places that I mean one of the places that I've seen it played out, and probably the reason I did my thesis on this for twenty you know twenty five years ago now, is again, you know, growing up in the South where you had wonderful senior elders and leaders who just couldn't make the switch to say that black people were equal. I mean, they just, 
they were not able to get over that. And everything else about their life and their faith and their leadership was gracious and wonderful and beautiful, but not that. Uh, how long do you hold up the community for those who are weak in faith? And, and that was a, you know, that was an ethical struggle of communities and of clergy and of, of religious people on something that was in that community deeper than the eating of food, even though I realized that kosher laws are very, very significant, you know, in, in the Jewish community as a circumcision. I mean, we don't relate to food laws and circumcision, but we relate to family members who just aren't where we are ethically. And, and how much do you insist on, you know, your right or your vision of, of life and morality and risk splitting the family. I mean, it does come down to, to relevant things, you know, and people have it today with gender issues, they have it with sexuality issues, they have it with who voted for Trump and who didn't vote for Trump, so we're all told to be silent at Thanksgiving. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's what do you do when you, you know, when you br- to bring this along? Okay, Phil. And warm, right? <laughs> So I am assuming you drank both graciously. Good. I think that's what Paul would tell you to do. Yeah. Okay, Catherine.
Right. Yeah. To, yeah. To, like, not just, not to the same, he's, Right. That's right. When, when that's a very good plug for the book. You are absolutely right. You're a great reader. That's exactly what he's trying to do. And hold on to your newfound affection for Paul, because chapter 11 will throw it out the window, <laughs> which we'll get to in a middle in a minute. Okay. Um, just to say, point out a couple of other places where this is, um, where, where this is, is shown. Look down at, um, yeah, look down at, at verse 23 in chapter 10. This is another place that, that says it well. Um, All things are lawful. Yes, Paul agrees with that. Remember, he's thrown out the law. In freedom, Christ has set us free. But not all things are beneficial. It's a pretty good piece of wisdom. All things are lawful, yes. But not all things build up the community. Uh, And then he says, which is one of his thesis statements... He goes so far as to say, do not seek your own advantage. Do not seek your own rights, but the advantage of the others. Now, I'm, I'm reading rights in there, but, but, I mean, that's the flip side of it is, you know, I, this can be used to silence people about their rights. But Paul's not doing that. But it's you know there's there's some limits to, I think there's some appropriate limits to this. It's it's another thing that that is raised for us. Um, I, I want to then then go up to chapter nine verse nineteen, and because this is another another twist for it, but it's an important twist, and I think it's an important twist for. For leadership and politics and institutions today. So starting at at 9 verse 19. For though I am free with respect to all, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I might win more to them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though I myself am not under the law so that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law who would be Gentiles, I became as one outside the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law. Again, so that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, so that I might win the weak. I became 
a famous phrase, all things to all people, so that I might by any means save some. I love the some, not all, so that I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel so that I may share in its blessings. That, uh, I mean, I'll be a little bit, you know, somewhat personal about this. Um, I think that I was first aware of that criticism being made of a leader relative to President Clinton in that, that he was often uh, sort of accused to different degrees of vitriol of trying to be all things to all people, you know, trying to bring both parties together too much and always try to sort of cut the difference and, and get an agreement. Um, I also realized that, that, that my leadership as a minister, particularly in, in, you know, I would say in the 90s, early 90s, I think a lot, a lot of ministers, a lot more than you all perhaps realize, have a real need to please people. I mean, we'll do anything to keep people happy. You know, we don't go into this business to make people mad. We want to keep people happy. And it's just very easy for us to not be confrontational. And, you know, if you come up and just start complaining out the ear about Nate, I'll sort of understand. You know, so you go away thinking that I agree with you. And then Nate comes up and complains about you. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. (laughs) And he goes away thinking. You know, we we tend to do that. And then, then when Nate and you talk, then you realize, oh, this guy's not being truthful, trying to be all things to all people. Um, it's a wonderful ethic that Paul has and I think he sort of pulls it off but it is he's very intent on saying that I as a leader of the religious community want to do everything I can to identify with people where they are and therefore if freedom from the law is really who they are and where they are, then I really want to become as much as I can like that. If adherence to the law is something that is very, very meaningful to them, I want to have as much empathy for that as I can. But I'm doing so to try to, quote, save everyone, but I know I'll only save some, you know. That, that's the way I read this. It's just as a, as a leader, that sort of strikes me. He does. Right. Roman citizen, yeah. Right. So he's trying to balance it. it seems right. Like, so he can get the message from them. Right. I mean, you're reading him correctly, and it's just—I uh, don't know. I just throw that out there. Any? Yes. You know, it, you could regard it as disingenuous. Oh yeah. Yes. 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 Right.
it saves him in our eyes. It didn't yeah. necessarily in their eyes. Yeah. It's like, wow, that doesn't really right. work for me. But but then then the question is, well, why are you doing this? And it's really not a personal gain. Yeah. Type thing. It's because he sees he sees in love another individual. Right. And so it it becomes more. Yeah, yeah, it can be like the means justifying the end. And I just go back to, I mean, again, Bill Clinton, in in my memory, was accused of being a people pleaser. You know, that's a phrase. You don't, you don't, as a leader, want to be called a people pleaser. That's generally a pejorative phrase. Uh, but at the same time, most people that say that want you to please them, but not them over there. <laughs> yeah, Wayne. Uh, Right. Universal, yeah. And, and so he was just unbelievably trying to hark back all the things that would deter from it and aim to, to those people, diverse as they were, he needed it. Yeah. And I, I want to say one other thing about this. Winning souls for Christ is an evangelical phrase from the 19th century, probably, if not, not earlier. And and that has an implication of, and he uses that language. I have not, you know, I'm trying to win some. Um, and and my interpretation of that, as it's used in American evangelicalism, is that's usually a one-on-one. That that's a that's a Billy Graham wanting to save the world one one soul at a time. You know, one Christian at a time. I, I think to use that phrase from Paul is sort of a misuse of the way he's using it here because, because again, his overriding image is building up the church. I want to build up the community. I want to win people to be a part of the community. And that's not, those aren't mutually exclusive, but I think his overriding concern here, I mean, he, as undiplomatic as his personality is, he is engaged in a huge diplomatic effort at, at building a community and holding it together. So, Catherine, you had your hand up earlier. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, I, I put a lot of emphasis, I don't mean to compliment in, in the past, but the, the Christian community is Yes. He, he sort of says, like, I can do this. Right. I know where I am with God's law and, and Christ's law. Right. And so he has this, this tremendous ability to be flexible and to lean into all these different cultures and groups of people because he knows where he is with God. And he has yeah. tremendous comfort with his own faith, which I, I don't know if that was connected. If not, for I don't mean to be sad. Yeah, right. Okay, Dana. I Thank <laughs> you.
<laughs> now don't don't prejudice yourself. <laughs> It's empathy. Law, you think of the law as a flagpole, and somebody standing at the top of the flagpole, that's the most important thing that is keeping them from falling down into God knows what. Right. And so Paul climbs up the flagpole. To and sit with them. And he's able to say, here we are, in some way or fashion, and there's more. Yeah. So who you are, and, you know, to go back and say, oh, that, pick up that flagpole, it's stupid, and right. start doing that, that means for many reasons. That's a really great image. Thank you for that. That's cool. I like that. Climbing up a flagpole with somebody. That's that's good. Phil, one more thing. I want to pick up on that and go a little further. Because I'm not comfortable with the idea of tarring Paul with being a politician. Right. And I'm not, I hope you don't get me as trying to do that. I'm Right. Because he wants their votes. Right. Now, what Paul was doing, and i got to bring me into this, you know that I have a rather old-fashioned conservative view of um, Calvinism. Of everything, Phil. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so, if I'm having a theological crisis and I come talk to you about right. it, Right. <laughs> Okay, um, let's go to chapter 11, you know, favorite chapter in the Bible, <laughs> head coverings, and and uh, all I'm doing is something that I think it was Tom Long or somebody at the Movable Feast walked walked me walked us through this chapter one time, and I, th- I thought it was great, so I'm going to do it with you. This is not original to me, but I've held on to it for dear life, so... Uh, chapter 11, verse 2. I commend you because you remember me and everything and maintain the traditions just as I handed them on to you. Paul commends the Corinthians for maintaining traditions. And now he's going to say why. He is going to give the basis, bases for what he is saying. But I want to, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. And the husband is the head of the wife, and God is the head of Christ. Any man who prays or prophesies with something on his head disgraces his head. But any woman who prays or prophesies with her head unveiled disgraces her head. It is one and the same thing as having her head shaved. 
For if a woman will not veil herself, then she should cut off her hair. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or to be shaved, she should wear a veil. For a man ought not to have his head veiled since he is the image and reflection of God, but the woman is the reflection of man. <clears throat> yeah, let's go have some cookies. <laughs> so, the basis number one that Paul is outlining is a hierarchy of leadership that he doesn't hear really tied to creation, but... Um, God is the leader of Christ. Christ is the leader of the man. The man, the husband, is therefore the leader of the wife. That's basis number one, okay? Now, basis number two. Indeed, man was not made from woman, but woman from man. So basis number two is the order of creation um, that he sees in the creation story. Number three, neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman was created for the sake of man. So basis number four is the purpose of the creation of woman and man. Basis number five, for this reason a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. I don't know where the angels come from. <laughs> They're just like flying around and sort of dip into this passage. <laughs> Right. It's just because of the angels. Okay. Bam. All right. That's basis number four. Basis number five. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man or man independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, but all things come from God. So reason number five in here is the relationship in the Lord. And reason number six seems to be the nature of birth, that woman gives birth to the man. And then reason number seven seems to be that all things come from God. And then reason number eight Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head unveiled? That reason is personal judgment. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper? And then reason number nine. Doesn't nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is degrading to him? Yeah, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. And he's basing that on nature. Doesn't nature teach you? And then my favorite one. But if anyone is disposed to be contentious or argumentative, we have no such custom nor do the churches of God. In other words, we've just always done it this way, <laughs> is what he ends on. Now, you know, this it's a little bit stretched. His exegesis is, leaves a little bit to be desired, I think, of Genesis. But... Paul is making a very personal and controversial argument.
to a community that he's trying to hold up. And and what we've seen is a meandering through about eight different reasons that he's giving. And in the end, he just says, well, we've just always done it this way. <laughs> and all I would say is, none of us have ever done that, have we? <laughs> it is for a systematic thinker like Paul, which he is, and a very good thinker, which we've seen at times, this is not his highest chapter of intellectual achievement or consistency. That's all I've got to offer on it. I mean, that's not all I've got to offer on it. So I don't know. We don't follow 11. We don't follow it. Phil? Right. <laughs> Messengers, yeah. Uh, and the idea is messengers being people sent to observe and to report. Now think mm-hmm. about this in today's society. If a woman is married, she usually has a wedding ring. And it's only recently that men should have a wedding ring too. What's the purpose of a, a wedding ring? Uh, whether or not we want to admit it, it's when uh, young men are out trying to get a date and they see that a woman has a ring on that particular finger that, oh, she's off limits. Let me find someone who does not have a ring. Maybe that's what what he's talking about. Yeah. It could be. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Oh yeah, he didn't know they were right. But it's but it's also inspiring to see people that go through chemo, women yeah, that go through chemo, show up at church, you know, with a shaved head. It's sort of a defiance of the illness, you know. I mean, it's it, the moray has changed, too. I think. I mean, what I the way I present this is, uh, again, as I as I've told you, I try to get people to read Paul more biographically than doctrinally. Uh, even though his primary influence in Christianity has been in doctrine. And and frankly, a lot of that influence, I, I think, has been in some of the more negative aspects of, Christ, of Christianity as it's existed. But, but he, uh, and I'm not really trying to defend him. I'm just saying he's a human being. This was not an A-plus term paper because it just, the sand just keeps shifting. Unlike, as we'll see at the end of this today, the solidity with which he believes the resurrection and the centrality of that to all his belief. So, it's cookie time, folks. All right? All right, come on in.
So let's uh, let's gather around and do chapters 12, 13, and 14. Believe it or not, are really a uh, are really a unit, and they get parts of them get sort of uh, you know chopped off and used independently, which is fine, um, including including the first part of chapter 12 chapter on chapter 12 verses 1 through uh, 1 through 26 is is one of the classic passages in Paul about about the church being the body of Christ he has the the church is the building and, and the church and not the church building but building up the body and here's the image of the church is the body of Christ. We actually read this at the session member session meeting that receives every new members. So I want to just refresh you with it. Again, now concerning spiritual gifts, they've written written in brothers and sisters. I do do not want you to be uninformed. Uh, verse four: There are varieties of gifts in the same Spirit. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given the, the utterance of wisdom, to another knowledge, to another faith, to another gifts of healing, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the discernment of spirits, to another the gift of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. And he emphasizes that all these are activated, activated by one and the same spirit, who allots to each one individually just as the Spirit chooses. Then he goes into the body images. For just as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we're all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we are all made to drink of one Spirit. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member of many. But of many, if the foot were to say, "Because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body," that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear were to say, "Because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body," that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were a hearing, where would the sense of smell be? It's kind of an extended anatomical <laughs> imagery. But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. The eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor the head of the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Uh, God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior member, down at 25, that there may be no dissension within the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. And this is a great verse. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. That's just a really great verse. But again, what he's using is body imagery to represent the community. And he's morphed into that from, from the discussion of spiritual gifts. And then he's going to return to spiritual gifts. Now, what I want to talk about, what I just want to say are, is, is definitions up front. Uh, when we read Acts, we saw the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost. 
And we always have Pentecost Sunday in the church, although it moves from anywhere, you know, mid-May to to almost mid-June. And it's always in the spring, and people are coming and going. So it it's not a religious uh, calendar day that we understand very well or focus on. But in Acts 2, this is after the ascension of Christ. And if you'll recall, you know, the heavens open and the Spirit descends on all of the, the pilgrims who have, who have come to Jerusalem. And they are, and, and tongues as of fire appear, and a tongue comes to rest on each individual. And then each individual begins to speak, but they speak in a language not their own. But the language is a foreign language because there are Greeks and Mythians and Persians. There are all these people that have gathered there, and they hear the gospel in their native tongue, those who have gathered. So it's like... Roger being given the gift to speak German and Amy the gift to speak Norwegian and you the gift of being of speaking Greek. You know, they're they're intelligible languages. They're foreign languages. You stand up and you speak and then therefore the Germans or the Norwegians or the Greeks can understand. And that's often called a reversal of the Tower of Babel. Okay? So that's the first huge public big manifestation of the gift of the Spirit. What Paul is talking about here is not Pentecost, but he's talking about what is commonly known as glossolalia, which is an experience of ecstasy in worship accompanied by a language that is not a foreign language, but is a spiritual language. It's not intelligible for the most part and requires someone to interpret. Um, so that's, that is what's called speaking in tongues, although churches that seek the spirit of speaking in tongues and have that as a featured part of their worship service are called Pentecostal churches. So that kind of confuses, you know, but if you go to an Assemblies of God church or, you know, any church that's called Pentecostal uh, or any, not any African-American church, but there are African-American churches that are primarily Pentecostal, the Church of God in Christ in Memphis is an example. And, And in those traditions, people generally seek this experience of glossolalia as, as a gift of the Spirit. I mean, that, that's what they, they want. That's the focus of the worship. Um, when it happens in, as you can imagine, in uh, churches in which people aren't normally experiencing the Holy Spirit in such a dramatic way, it often becomes divisive. And, and there are Episcopal and Presbyterian and Methodist churches in which people will have experiences of glossolalia and and they can become very divisive in the congregation. Part of it is because it's so threatening to uptight people like us, and part of it is because often people who have that experience, because it's an experience of of ecstasy, will, as happened in Paul's day, begin to feel that they have the highest spiritual gift and become arrogant. So it's 
you know, but but it is a real phenomenon. I mean, I have known uh, Presbyterians. I have known people who who are raised in this tradition. It's it's often something that we sort of snicker at and snare at and look down our noses at. Uh, but it but it is real. I mean, my professor of homiletics at Union was Pentecostal, out of the, an African American Pentecostal. Uh, I had an Old Testament professor who was Pentecostal. He wasn't a very good teacher, but he was Pentecostal. And uh, and you know, my the story that I always tell is when I was an intern in seminary in Memphis. Part of my job was to be the out of town hospital visitor chaplain. To Presbyterians who in those days came from the rural areas or smaller towns of Arkansas and Mississippi and Tennessee to the big Baptist or Methodist hospital in Memphis, a medical center, for major surgery. So usually people that were there were there because they were having neurosurgery or heart surgery, you know, something really major. So every Thursday I went over to those hospitals and pre-computer they had an index, gray index card file with A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and, you know, P was Presbyterians, and this was before HIPAA law, so I'd go to the P's, and there was a card for everybody, every Presbyterian patient in the hospital, so I'd go to the top floor and just work my way down, you know, room to room, to all the Presbyterians, maybe 10 or 15 or 30, you know, in a day. And so I went into this one room, and there is... uh, about a 12-year-old boy laying flat under the, under the sheet in in his bed with his head bandaged in white. He had obviously had, he looked kind of like Richard tonight, you know, he'd obviously had some sort of neurosurgery, from which he, but he was, you know, he was asleep. And there were what appeared to be a father and grandfather seated on the little bench next to the window right by his bed. So I go in and say, you know, I'm Larry Hayward. I'm, you know, the Presbyterian visitor to Presbyterians from out of town. And the two men stand up and say, oh, that is wonderful. We are Pentecostal pastors. So the P's got mixed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I'm into this. I didn't say, well, tough. I'm going to the next room. So I said, you know, introduced myself. We talked a little bit. And I said, well, I'd like to, you know, pray for your son. They told me, you'd, you know, it had surgery. And, so I go over like I did to the bed and stood by him, and, you know, they, they come over, and I said, of course you can pray. And so I start praying my normal Presbyterian prayer. You know, dear God, we're thankful for medical care and pray for your, you know, presence to this family and strength and that you will use the doctors and nurses and all the gifts of medicine and technology for the healing of this boy. Well, when I start, they start praying in tongues. And it's, I mean, it's a whispering. I mean, both of them. And I knew what they were doing, you know. Um, I'll just say, I ended that prayer faster (laughs) than I normally end prayer. I got to amen as soon as I could get to amen. But, you know, that's my own discomfort, not the ingenuineness of of them by, by any stretch. So, having said that, what Paul is dealing with here, in addition to everything else he's dealing with in this church is an people part of whose sense of spiritual superiority comes from the gift of speaking in tongues. And to those persons, as, as much as he's trying to hold them together, 
I mean, this, this is essentially his message. And, and you look at it, look at verse 27 in chapter 12. Now you are the body of Christ, all of you all, they use plural there, and you are individually sing, singular members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then deeds of power, then gifts of healing, forms of assistance, forms of leadership, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak in tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. But strive for the greater gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. What he is trying to do, and it's questionable whether it was successful, and, and, and I think earlier he, well, I think he'll come back to it, yeah. Look, look at 14 then. Yeah, look at chapter 14, uh, starting at the beginning, because he's going to come back to this. Pursue love and strive for the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For those who speak in a tongue do not speak to other people, but they speak to God, for nobody understands them, since they are speaking the mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, those who prophesy speak to other people for their building up and encouragement and consolation. Again, that word building up. Those who speak in a tongue build up themselves, but those who prophesy build up the church. It's pretty tough language. Now, I would like all of you to speak in tongues. I'm not sure that he really wants that, but even more to prophesy. One who prophesies is greater than one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church might be built up. Now, brothers and sisters, if I came to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I speak of some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? And then down at verse 12, so with your 12, since you were, so for, with yourselves, since you were eager for, eager for spiritual gifts, strive to excel for them in building up the church. And over verse 13, therefore one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unproductive. In verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Uh, and then down in, uh, he then expands to, well, in 21, Tongues then are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is not for unbelievers but for believers. Um, 26, 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be only one or two at most three in each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let them be silent in the church and speak to themselves and to God. Um, and 33, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. And then he gets in, 
parenthetically to another statement about women, again, in the context of disorder. As in all the churches of the saints, women should be silent, for they're not permitted to speak, but should be subordinate, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to know, let them ask their husbands at home. Well, good luck with that one. (laughs) For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church, or did the word of God originate with you, or are you the only ones that it has reached? It's, you know, wish he hadn't said that. that one is a little bit more in the in the context of disorder and worship, but he does sort of default to blaming the women. And then finally at 39, So my friends, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. That's our Presbyterian bumper sticker. It's there in the Scripture after telling women to be quiet, you know. We don't say that. Yes. Are there also documented cases of people who have the gift of interpretation and can make sense of the uh, utterances in tongues? Uh, yeah. Excuse me. I, I said, I said, yeah. 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 I mean, I I assume so. It was understood, accepted. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, again, my, I mean, the two adult Pentecostals I knew were my homiletics professor and my Old Testament professor, and I have no reason to doubt that that it is genuine. I think I think what you're revealing is a prejudice that we have, and I don't mean to pick on you, that we're... Right. I mean, I've and I've been to a couple of funerals that have that are that are Pentecostal, and it's sort of to me it sounds like sounds and words. I mean, it's sort of a mixture. It, it's not just a string of words in English that don't make sense. Yeah, patience. What I know is um, you don't have control over yourself. The Holy Spirit takes over. It embarrasses you, yeah, because you're out of control, right? Right. You've been banned from receiving the gift forever, right? Right. So, yes. Yes, we do. We have somebody here that's spoken in tongues. Yeah, we do. I don't know who. I mean. Oh, go ahead. And you're a Presbyterian. I know. Right. I will tell you that after this happened, and it 
I talked to my father about it. And Who was a Presbyterian pastor. And, and he, he didn't you know, disown you. No, right. he said, you know, I prayed for this. Yeah. He said, that's just never happened to me. One time I came home, uh, it was late, late at night. Uh, I'd been playing bridge, and my then husband was home with the kids. And uh, I came in, and I went to, to bed, and then I thought, no, I feel like I, I, I'm going to pray. So, and I don't want to interrupt David's sleep, so um, I got up. Well, now, I want to tell you that when I do go, when I do pray, I don't usually pray out loud. So that was just a strange thing, but it didn't seem strange. So I got up, and I went into the living room, and the living room, of course, was dark, and I didn't turn on any lights. And that's another strange thing, because at that time in my life, I really wasn't, you know, going around dark places. I like to turn on lights. But anyway, so then I started out, as I many times have since I was a child, with the 23rd Psalm. And I kept starting it, and it kept being interrupted. And I thought, what's the matter? So then I started again, and it'd be interrupted. And then I started just speaking in tongues. Now, I will tell you that one of the things that made me want to say this, besides Judas, is... <laughs> Yeah. I'm a part of the whole thing. But in this particular instance, I'm looking, I'm thinking, what's going on? What, what, what's going on? My mind was completely separate from all of this that was bubbling out on and on and on and on. Okay, well, I could just tell you that after that, as it started to wind down, I felt what has been described by Paul, but not necessarily about that, was a peace that passed all understanding. Yeah. I felt it's terrific. incredible happened to me several times, never in the company of others, except one time I did think, well, maybe this is something, and maybe, so I went to a church, and I thought, no, this is not me, this has got nothing to do with me, I would never, you know, whatever, anyway, the point is, I can tell you that I don't know what I said, I can tell you that it happened to me many times, and at one point, when my, uh, I was pregnant with my third child, my other two were still little, and it started coming over me when I was uh, uh, taking a nap. And I sat up and I said, God, I'm sure that this is a very special thing. But I can't have this. I need to rest. I cannot do this. And so then it went away. And for years and years, and then every once in a while I thought, oh, gosh, you know, I'm kind of sorry that I did that. And then I didn't think about it. And then it's happened to me a few times since then. But huh. I can tell you that's great. very different. That's very terrific. Thing, and I can tell you that it's that it is real, yeah. I'd never even heard of it before. Yeah, that's terrific. Thank you for prompting her to share that. No, it is terrific. It is terrific. Thank you for that. But you were also not in a community. I mean, it, it was an individual religious experience. Yes, yeah. I can tell you that it sounded to me like a language. I mean, yeah. it had certain form. It had certain certain sounds, but yeah, and I would just I would just go back to Phil's question and say there there is plenty of both evidence and just power behind documentaries and research that I mean you can see how this would be open to charlatanism, but it doesn't mean that because something's open to charlatanism that every manifestation of it is. So let me do Gail and Mark, and then I'll, I want to keep moving. Well, didn't with the um, disciple 
Yeah, tongues. And, and they, um, they started to speak. It seemed like in the Bible they were saying other languages. Yes, that's what I was saying earlier. So, I mean, it, it, in but, some ways it was just intelligent. Other people heard it and understood it. Yeah. You know, and they were like, what's going on? Who are these people that know my language? Yeah, you know? and some thought they were drunk. Honestly, the text says that. Well, I think the difference is that that story makes a, a big deal of people from all the nations of the world coming for the festival. And the gift of the Spirit enabled people to speak in the languages of those who came, and, and therefore they could understand. So it, it's a different... It, it was, again, you speaking Spanish. I mean... It's closer to that than, than what Dan has described. Yeah, an unknown language. So Mark, and then I want to move on. Most of the times that, that I've seen it. Yeah. And as a military chaplain, you would have seen seen it probably. Or, I've seen it during that time. No, that's true. I was visiting a church. So, but most of the times I've seen some individuals, but when I've seen interpretation, it, it was during a, a moving time of worship. Although it often happens in a worship setting, yeah. Too. That's great. And it, and it helps for us because it, it is something that, again, you know, we tend, we who are educated and intellectual and Presbyterian and all that, tend to sneer at it. And it's and all of you all, three of you, have helped us not to sneer at it and, and see that it that it's real. Right. We all feel guilty for not serving others. Yeah. And there's people who know nothing about the Bible but are serving others. Right. And yet there's there has to be a place for ourselves, but not to the point of it's all about yeah. Which leads me to remember we were on chapter twelve and then we skipped to chapter fourteen. 
In the middle of that, Paul inserts this hymn. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions and if I hand over my body so that I may boast but do not have love, one translation says hand over my body to be burned, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part. Then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide these, abide these three, and the greatest of these is love. It is a great passage for weddings, but his use of it is even greater than that. I mean, it is like making this intense, I mean, he spends three chapters on this, 12, 13, and 14, on this building up of the church in, in the context of spiritual gifts and putting the interests of others. But it's perfectly in place. It's perfectly in place. Yeah, he breaks forth into singing. I mean, it's it is a. I mean, have you ever have you ever been? I mean, can you imagine a? I mean, why do people after why did people after nine eleven break forth into spontaneously singing the national anthem? I mean, music just music elevates the argument. It's, I mean, it's it's a it's an intense discussion and a personal discussion he's having, and then he remembers this hymn from somewhere and brings it in, and then he picks up the argument again. It's perfect here. Um, it's just when we when we excise it, and you know. I mean, I hate to say this, but when we excise it and put it on our college dorm walls and, and, and to some extent even use it for weddings, it's not illegitimate, but it's, it's lesser than, than, the, than the way Paul really uses it because it is. And love there is not eros. It's agape, which is the love of Christ, the total self-giving love for one another and for the community. So... Um, I want to do the resurrection, but I want you to stand. I think you need to stand and stretch because we're not going to be able to do this today. Everybody just stand up. You know, if you want to reach, reach for the ceiling, touch your toes, you know, whatever. So this is, it's not really a break. It's just a.
Yeah, just stretch, just to get a little bit of a break. It's a little warm in here, so. Because it, it is such a beautiful description of love between the two people getting married. It's It's been kidnapped. And so, anyway, so, and it, and it does. I mean, it, it's a beautiful description of what it takes for a marriage to work. It's also used in literature through glass darkly. Yeah, there's other, yeah, which we'll talk about in Resurrection. Hmm. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let's go to the resurrection now. This is chapter 15. Yes. Sure. Yeah. No, that's fine. Right. Um, I think when. Her question is, Paul uses the word prophesy. What is he talking about there? Um, I'm not exactly sure. It certainly involves interpreting the word of God that, that has broken out in worship. I also think it means you know, interpreting and presenting the word of God to the community, which is consistent with sort of the Hebrew definition of prophets. It's a little bit... I hate to open this window, but I don't want to freeze you all out, but I do feel like we need a little bit of, of air in here. So you want to open that one a little? Can you crack that one a little, if you don't mind? I think it'll help, because I don't want you to go to sleep on the resurrection. Uh, now, um, it is interesting that, as you know, we've seen all the way along, Paul at times talk about his opinion Versus a word from the Lord. And we've, you know, in chapter 11, we saw him have a lot of different bases for for uh, things. Um, in going through this chapter on the resurrection, it is the it is the final flourish of his writing in Corinthians. It's what everything leads up to and almost then needs to be read back into everything. I mean, it's like everything is leading up to, to this. It's it's almost to him on the resurrection, too. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It is very dense and complex, and it covers a lot of material, and I want to stop and cover some of the material because it's questions people have. But So let's just start with chapter 15. Now, I should remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, the gospel, which you in turn received, in which you stand, through which you are being saved. We use this as an affirmation of faith. If you hold firmly to the message that I proclaimed you, unless you've come to believe it in vain. For I hand it on to you as of first importance what I had received. That Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised, according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to twelve and he appeared to more than 500 apostles and disciples at one time, and last of all, appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me, 
kind of what Dana described. Um, he has talked about the unity of the church and building up the church and building up the body of Christ. And what he is saying is of first importance in this, the glue, the basis, the foundation, is that Christ has been raised from the dead. And he's making it, he's saying that I was untimely born because I didn't witness it, but I am passing on to you what I received from the earliest apostles, from the witnesses. So Paul himself was, you know, was not a witness. Uh, then he goes through some argumentation uh, that gets complex and it sort of answers different questions. The first one in 12, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, then how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? Because if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised and your faith is futile. There is, you know, the concept of resurrection was in Judaism, but it was new at that day. So there are many people who were interested in what he was saying and attracted to him, but, but were saying, but there's no resurrection of the dead, so how can Christ be raised? So that's one argument he's trying to take on. And he's saying that if there isn't resurrection of the dead and Christ wasn't raised, then the faith you have is futile, which is F-U-T-I-L-E, which is one of the ways of saying that, that the resurrection is, is central in the anchor of faith uh, or of Christian faith. And then he um, he draws an analogy to Adam. Uh, for since death came through a human being, Adam, the resurrection of the, the dead also came through a human being, Christ. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. That is a basis for one of the questions that Christians often have about themselves or about someone has, who has died. When will my mom, my dad, my brother who has died be reunited with God, be raised from the dead? And here it sounds like it's at the second coming. At other places in Paul, First Thessalonians that we saw, it's, it sounds like it's now. And actually in this letter, it will begin to sound like it's immediate as well. And immediate is what what I believe. Uh, although I think time is a different thing to God than to us. Uh, he's not claiming to know it. He's using, I, I don't think he's claiming to know it. I think Paul is using metaphorical and poetic and, and hymnic language here. So, uh, anybody that, yeah, I would say that's true of, of all Christians. Uh, but each in his own order. Then comes the end when, when he, Christ, hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and every power. Um, for he must reign until all enemies are put under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Um, there is a very strong theme in Paul that death is an enemy, but it is an enemy that has been overcome and conquered in the in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And it's part of that sort of a Christus victor or smoke jumper or what I would almost say is a warrior image of Christ, that Christ has come to conquer death 
the power of death. Death is described as an enemy. It's like a force out there. It's not just the natural dying of the body. Um, But then he comes back in 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. Uh, Yeah, we've already done that. Uh, I would also say that this image of, of, of resurrection here is not of souls going to heaven. That is a Greek and a Platonic concept. But this is an image of the redemption of all of creation, including at least believers at the end of time. It is a, it is a cosmic Christ coming to remake everything, to redeem everything, uh, and, and in a sense recreate it, almost <laughs> like after the flood. Um, and, and one of the ways of saying, you know, so I've always said to members, you know, adults who lose pets, but also to children, when your children ask, will my pet be in heaven? I say yes, because pets are part of nature. And all nature is being recreated. You know, the tsunamis will end, the earthquakes will end, the fierce terror of nature, which so many of us forget when we're out walking through the forest experiencing God in nature all of that will be will will be healed and and recreated which is just a bigger concept than than our individual souls going to heaven um, then if you look at 35 what follows is sort of the rationalist question and I can tell you that the rationalist question is probably on the mind of 50% or more of people who attend worship on Easter Sunday because 30% of them are there out of loyalty to their spouse or their parent or their friend. And, uh, I mean, I've had a serious conversation with a man in Iowa who was there every Sunday and just said Easter is hard for me because I can't rationally believe in the resurrection and I'm told we have a woman visiting this church now who's visited for 20 something years and has never joined because she said to somebody I just can't get the how of the resurrection I can't make that step and therefore I don't feel like I should join the church so let's let's tackle that one starting at 35. But someone will ask, indeed they do ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Fool, he says diplomatically. (laughs) What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. He's going to revert to nature right now. And as for what you sow, you do not sow the body that is to be, but you sow a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Not all flesh is alike, but there's one flesh for human beings, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are both heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one thing, the earthly is another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. Indeed, star differs from star in glory. That's an analogy he's using of, of 
really nature and cosmology. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable like a seed, but what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a physical body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a physical body, there is also a spiritual body. Um, it's interesting because I, I think in, in one sense Paul is reflecting some of the Greek philosophy that, that matter is, I mean that, that spirit is superior to matter and that the body doesn't matter and is to be escaped with and therefore the goal is for our soul to go to heaven. But I also think he's, I think at a deeper level what he's comparing is is that death is a process of decay and transformation like planting a seed. I mean, you plant a seed, and the seed eventually gets eaten up by the soil. And and most of us who begin the process of aging when we're about five years old, uh, and certainly with the length of years that so many people have today, either themselves or in witnessing their parents and family members who live so long. Um, while there's not a dishonor in aging, there is a frustration. And very few people describe aging as glory. It's described as weakness, as um, the decay of the physical body, and, and that's real. You know, and Paul's not celebrating that. He's saying that that is like nature, but that what comes afterwards, that that has to happen for this spiritual body to emerge. Paul's image, the answer to Paul's how is that it is a spiritual body. And that is a logical impossibility when you think about it. I mean, this is my answer. Is it a body or is it a spirit? No. It's a spiritual body. And and what I have always taken that to mean, since I've thought about it, and I've thought about it a lot over the years, is um, the body part of that conveys continuity. It conveys partially a continuation of identity. And so I have always told people that you know that when we die, that when you die, you will be you in heaven. I mean Catherine will be ha- Catherine and Phil will be Phil and Marianne will be Marianne. Your your identity, you know, your body will will be not the same but will be will have continuity. Um and the spirit is is the change. It's it's a transformation. It's imperishable. It, it's a it's a new and different identity, and that ma- not a new and different identity, but just a new and different entity, and that really matches some of the appearance stories of Jesus, because Jesus was raised from the dead, but they didn't recognize him. He appeared to make his way through doors that were shut. Thomas had to see him. I mean, you know, there there's a sense in which his what his form was was a spiritual body. So it's a 
it's an image where Paul is speaking of something that is beyond what can be described by science or beyond what can be described by anatomy. Um, and, and he's, you know, he's grasping for a way to describe it. Uh, the continuity comes with, along with our belief of, of the communion of the saints. You know, I do believe we will be reunited with people that have gone before that we'll recognize. And like I said, when I, my mother died this summer, the prayer I said over her body was that I hoped she would be reunited with those with whom she wanted to be reunited. <laughs> uh, I don't know why I said that. It was kind of a, you know, a disrespectful thing to God, but it just came to me. I think she'll be happier if there's certain people she doesn't have to be reunited with. Uh, but the phrase continuity, I shall know and be fully known. I shall see God face to face as opposed to in a mirror dimly, which is the way we see God now. You know, we are in the resurrection who we are prior to the resurrection. The change or the transformation is now we see in a mirror dimly, then we shall see face to face. These are beautiful images, but they're images. Now we know in part, then we will be fully understood. So we do get to ask those questions of God that flummox us throughout life and for which there are no answers. This matches the recognition, lack of recognition of Christ. It's both more than a body and more than simply a spirit. Resurrection is more than the resuscitation of a corpse. It is also more than a soul going to heaven. It is more than eternal life. But Paul ultimately describes it as a mystery involving the redemption of creation of which we are all a part. And therefore, the questions of how and what type of body, while they are important, are lower-level questions, the answers of which cannot compare to the extra-historical or outside-of-history nature of the resurrection. And so then he ends with the language of victory. What I am saying, brothers and sisters, I'm at verse 50 now, is this. Flesh and blood, our rational thought processes, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. Mystery, he says. We will not all die, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Beautiful, beautiful images for death. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. That sounds like it's happening upon our death. For this perishable body will put on imperishability. This mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable body puts on imperishability and the mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. And he grabs this from poetry of the day. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus. Death and sin are enemies to be defeated, warriors to be conquered. And then he ends with one of the most important conjunctions in any language. Therefore, therefore, my beloved 
and in King James, it's be ye steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor here on earth, tough as it is, boring as it is, unrewarded as it is, is not in vain. Pow! Into the letter. Except he's going to tell everybody goodbye in the next chapter. I mean, there's, but that's the end of the letter. It is this huge crescendo, like the end of a symphony or the end of an opera. And it's just a wonderful, it's why, you know, some that have read Paul say that the resurrection jumps out from every page. It is central to his faith. And um, I don't, I mean, I'm not scientifically oriented. I've never been deterred by the need to explain it. But that's not a part of my psyche. I know for many people it is. And I think sometimes I've been pastorally um, deficient in not being able to help people who, who have that mindset. But But I... I do think it is something that is beyond history, that's beyond description, that it can only be described at through these metaphors and images. And do uh, you have to believe the resurrection to be a Christian? I think you do, but that is not in a mechanical um, sense that answers the how. It is. I mean, Hans Frey, who's a theologian at Yale, it's kind of a reverse argument. Basically, said. Uh, the story does not make sense without the resurrection. I mean, why would you, why would you have, why would you have faith in Jesus or Christ without the resurrection? It's the resurrection that that makes it sense, that that drives it. And so, it, I mean, it is central to the Christian faith. I just say that when you, you know. In order to be a Christian, you've got to trust it. You don't have to explain it. And a lot of us think we have to explain things before we can believe them or commit to them. And if we're like that, God help your pitiful soul. <laughs> I mean, there's just nothing, you know, that's very, very important because we've, we've built a great nation on our ability to explain things and to master things and knowledge, but there are some things that, that are beyond that. And this, this is one of them. So, questions, reactions. We've got five more minutes. Y'all been very patient today. Are the cookies still there? Are there still cookies? Yes, Nate. Okay, so we know that. But I have always known that you were the most brilliant person to ever occupy the basement of our house. <laughs> so I think it is a great question. I, and I'm, I'm telling you the truth. I think it is a great question. Um, I'm not. And I think the answer to that is probably yes, but I find this answer to be much, much larger than than addressing something that's sort of as narrow, and I'm not sure was that influential than than Stoicism. That's my initial crack at that answer. But, I I mean, have you ever seen that, Mark, or anybody that, that reads this stuff? Have you ever seen it as being addressed to Stoicism specifically? I just think I think it's possible, Nate. Well, I brought a book just in case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've read. I mean, I know Marcus Aurelius. I know. And they specifically highlight the.
similarities. Yeah. Um, this is the Gregory Hayes version. Right. He specifically highlights um, similarities between Paul and Stoicism. The similarities, yeah. yeah. Okay. The only thing I would say about that is that um, Paul was raised Jewish, and yet he can he spoke. He, he helped Christianity morph into the language of the Greco-Roman world. And part of that language was a diminishment of matter in favor of spirit, of body in favor of soul. And, and in Western Christianity, that's sort of what we inherited. That's why the most common way to describe death and heaven is, is my soul went to heaven. I mean, that's, that's where that comes from. Um, But I, I somehow don't, I somehow think what he's doing here is larger than that. I mean, I think he's, I think he's battling the whole sort of matter-spirit division, okay, and and therefore he is, he is not saying, by any stretch of the imagination, that your bodies are not important. He's saying, in fact, your bodies are so important that, yes, they're perishable, but they are going to be transformed in, into a spiritual body. And I frankly think that that when we get to you know, Revelation and it's the, the new heavens and the new earth, I think that is a very good argument for <coughs> belief in the bodily resurrection, the recreated and, and renewed and reformed, remade body is a very good argument for environmentalism, for caring about the world. Because I think throughout the Bible, there is God's care for matter, for earth, for planet, for dirt, for human beings, for body. And he cares for it so much that he's going to transform it into a spiritual body in heaven. And, and that is contrary to Stoicism, and that's contrary to a lot of sort of Greek Platonic thought, I think. But I'm not that versed in it. Y'all have been very patient tonight. Next week is the Super Bowl. We will get out at one minute till six, and so everybody that has to see the Super Bowl can have time to get home. But we don't stop studying for the Super Bowl. <laughs> All right? God bless you all. Go home. Have a good week. All right. So.